0: Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger on this episode of Jill on Money. Is the tried and true investment advice
1: right going forward? We've had an environment for 40 years in which all boats have been rising. And so if you think about the investment advice that the average retail person was given, put your money in an index fund, forget about it. I'm not so sure that's the best advice anymore, because I think that U.S. multinational stocks in particular, their growth is going to be constrained
0: welcome to the Jill on money podcast we are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs now, beginning of the year good time to take stock of where things stand that's why I was happy to book our guest Rana Faruhar. she's a columnist at the Financial Times she has such a great depth of knowledge around the economy financial services the technology sector she's also got a new book out it's called don't be evil how big tech betrayed its founding principles and all of us this is a wide-ranging conversation with Rana hope you enjoy it you're listening to Jill on money with Jill Schlesinger what was the best financial or career decision you've ever made
1: oh wow what a good question um you know to develop a portfolio career a few years ago I was at a point in my career where I could have stayed on the management track and become an editor-in chief somewhere had the big job with the big title and it was interesting a lot of my um, male peers were very much kind of drawn to that direction But I really, as somebody covering business and the economy, I looked out and I thought, you know, I think we're headed to a world in which flexibility is gonna be what's valued and the ability to move across platforms. So I was a print journalist at the time and I thought, I want to do video. I want to do radio. I, I got an, an on-air contract with with CNN. I started doing work with NPR. I started writing books. And so now I think of myself as a little mini entrepreneur. And I've got kind of five legs on my stool. So if one of those legs breaks or two or three, you know, that's going to happen. you got a couple there in reserve. Yeah. I love a diversified portfolio. Exactly. It's a beautiful thing.
0: So let me start by asking you, you were covering financial services, right? Yeah, yeah. So what made you move into tech?
1: Well, you know, it was interesting. It the last uh, book that I did, the first chapter was actually about Apple because I was, you know, that book was about financial markets. And I was trying to find what are the craziest ways in which companies are playing the financial markets. And at that time, Apple had like $300 million of cash, sorry, billion dollars of cash on the balance sheet. It was giving a bunch back to shareholders in the form of buybacks, which kind of artificially pushes the markets up. And I thought that's really weird. Well, since then, all the tech firms have started doing that. The money has gone from Wall Street to Silicon Valley they have become in some ways the new too-big-to-fail institutions they're at the center of our economy our politics as we know uh, election disinformation still a huge issue And also there's a social angle on this, um, which I get into in the book, that my son actually became a video game addict, which is one of the prompts for writing this. So you started the book with
0: that story about your son. If you wouldn't mind, can you recount what happened and how that immersed you in this?
1: Yes, it's seared in my brain forever. Um, I I had just started the FT, actually, uh, and I was writing about the world's biggest business tech economy stories and so I was starting to look at just how much money was in Silicon Valley Um, and just one quick stat before I tell you about my son 80% of corporate wealth today is held by just 10% of firms and the biggest ones are the ones we know Amazon Google Facebook Apple so these companies have basically ring-fenced the world's wealth so I was thinking about that I come home one day and I find a credit card bill I open it up and I see all these tiny charges, $1.99, $3, $5. And I'm going through and I think, my God, I've been hacked. you know. But then I start to notice they're all from the app store. And I think, huh, who else has my password? My 10-year-old son, Alex. I go downstairs, and he's, of course, on his phone, as always. I have to pry him off of it. And I ask him what's going on, and he sort of you know, turns white. Well, it turns out he has downloaded one of those free, and I put free in quotation marks, soccer games. And this is a sort of game that kids get into, and it draws them in, and then they're sold these what's called in-app purchases, loot boxes. They don't know that they're really spending real money, but if they want to move ahead in the game, they have to buy virtual Ronaldo, or they have to get a pair of cool shoes for their player, and that's real money. So over $900, <laughs> and one month later, Alex was at the top of the league scores. I am freaking out. I was horrified as a mother but I was fascinated as a journalist and so
0: where did that take you in terms of how you were diving into these tech companies
1: first of all I thought okay this is unbelievable this is the most interesting business model I've ever seen because this is a business model that gets inside your brain and pulls you where the companies want you to go so I started looking into it and the first interesting thing I found was that these technologies these persuasive technologies are actually part of an entire industry. Many of them came out of something called the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab, which is rather Orwellian sounding. Yeah, I'll say. And they, you know, they bring kind of casino gaming techniques, variable rewards. You know, the same kind of things that keep you pulling a slot machine. That's now in your phone. So you have a slot machine in your pocket all the time. And as I began to think about that model, I realized these companies are, to quote Columbia academic Tim Wu, attention merchants, right? It's about keeping us online as long as possible so that they can harvest our data. I studied some of the cognitive effects for this book, and they're particularly pernicious for children whose brains are sort of more malleable. I mean, all of us get distracted by this stuff. And P.S., we touch our phones hundreds of times a day, you Mm -hmm. know, and every time we do that, that's a little pull away from our work. But kids in particular are really being reshaped by this. It's fascinating because a lot of college professors, high school teachers are finding that kids are coming in and they cannot do the sort of core reading that you and I used to do as part of our curriculum. You know, in college, you go to college, you're probably reading a couple hundred pages a week of text. Kids can't do that anymore. They are so used to living in a world of high-speed images and always-on technology that they can't focus, they can't concentrate anymore. And it's interesting, reading levels have been declining. Only about a third of teenagers read more than once a month for pleasure now, long-form text. So um, this is having profound effects. And one of the things I recommend, actually, in the book is that we probably need to have, at some point, an FDA of technology just to study what the impacts are. It's a bit like nicotine. You know, everybody, everybody smoked, everybody's mom smoked until we knew, hey, this stuff's bad for you. I want to get back to something. Thing you started with which is about you know
0: these companies have concentrations of wealth and you go through all the data where they basically own each of their industries they are essentially monopolies but you also say not as monopoly is defined by law as of right. Robert Bork's argument
1: well exactly and that's such an important point so since the 1980s onward we've had this sort of what's called the Chicago school of thought Robert Bork was kind of one of the big brain guys behind this that says as long as consumer prices are falling, you don't have a monopoly problem. So that's why you can get a company in you know, in the previous generation, like Walmart, for example, that can come in and take over entire uh, town squares and run small businesses out. But that's not a monopoly problem because prices are falling. We'll take that paradigm and put it onto these new digital giants like an Amazon. Yeah, prices are falling. We all know and love how cheap cheaply we can get stuff online, but we're not paying in dollars. We're paying in data. So that is a really different kind of transaction and you can't judge it by the same monopoly standards in fact we're not customers to some extent right. we're the product 100% well you know when anything's free you're the product that's yeah. right
0: it's so true and the prices have come down but they also gobble up their competition pretty aggressively
1: oh 100% you know one of the things that I found very interesting is that a lot of folks in Silicon Valley are actually worried about the big companies because if you're a startup if you're a venture capitalist, That's trying to move into an area That a Google or a Facebook or an Amazon is in It's nearly impossible They have ring-fenced all the data So think about it Amazon is basically 60% of all e-commerce in the world right now you know it's where most people start their online shopping Mm -hmm. Google is 85% of searches Facebook is almost the entire social media world if you're trying to get into these spaces you can't either because companies are being bought up or because they simply can't get started there's just no oxygen in the room
0: and you also recount that you know from a political point of view that these companies kind of curried favor with uh, the Obama administration so for those eight years where there was real growth and yeah. a lot of things were going on. I know the financial crisis occupied quite a bit of time and healthcare occupied a lot of time, but it seemed like there was what we used to call in financial services, regulatory capture. It was 100%. almost like a, it's like the capture there. Do you see that changing? We are hearing candidates talk about that. But is this real or is this just, yeah. hey, we ought to break up these big companies?
1: So it's a it's a super interesting question right now. Just to go to your point, big tech, Google and Amazon in particular are now the number one corporate lobbyists in Washington. So all and by the way, I studied that sort of regulatory capture issue in the financial sector. What has happened in big tech is so much more profound because they've bought out not only the politicians, they've bought out all the academics. I mean, it was almost impossible to find neutral research at this point because most academics in the field are being funded by one of these companies mm. for their work. It's in very fine print at the bottom of these reports, which you got to read. Is this going to change? Well, we're hearing a lot from, say, Elizabeth Warren about breaking up big tech, which to be fair, is a little more of a slogan than a solution. I do think, though, that you're starting to see this weird confluence of left and right political alignment over, you know what, maybe this is not good for our economy and our politics. And the reasons that the left and the right have are different. So liberals, Democrats care about corporate concentration of power. They care about wages. They're worried that we're going to see sort of the Uberization of everything, the rise of a gig economy. So they're worried about big tech for that reason. Conservatives are worried for two other reasons. One is that you know the kind of moderate midwestern conservatives are worried about small businesses just not being able to be founded. And indeed, if you look at the numbers in the last twenty years, as big tech has risen and corporate concentration has gotten higher, the number of startups has fallen, the the amount of entrepreneurial zeal in the economy has gone down. So Republicans worry about that. But they also worry that they're getting a raw deal because a lot of these firms are in very blue state california they're they're you know card-carrying democrats although i would argue that they're more libertarian than liberal but they worry that hey you know if there's some algorithmic bias going on we may be on the wrong side of that
0: where does that leave the rest of the country when it when you're talking about job creation where does that leave the the
1: places that feel uh remote from these hubs Uh, Great question. I think big tech has contributed to what was already happening, which is this rise of a superstar economy, of a real winner-take-all economy. We were seeing that concentration for a couple of reasons. I mean, globalization definitely favored the coasts, but hollowed out the rust belt and parts of the Midwest, as we know. Technology has put all those trends on steroids. Mm. So now you've got basically four companies, five companies that are driving the S&P up or down and the headquarters where those companies are are where you see huge real estate gains a huge you know wage hikes for certain kinds of jobs you have a lot of PhD jobs a lot of service jobs you know it's basically the people that are coding and the people that are giving them massages have work but nobody in between has work right or you
0: have like a bunch of warehouse jobs where these people are working their butts off That's and it. have terrible back pains etc so I want to go back to this comparison between financial services and big tech now I look at technology Mm. and I think the part of it that annoys someone like me an old fart like me (laughs) is that they couch so much of what they do as virtue
1: yes oh my gosh. and it is Insane to me. It is insane. You know. Do you remember when um, Lloyd Blankfein from Goldman made that God's comment? God's work. God's work. Well, these guys really believe it. He was being ironic. Yeah. The guys in the valley, and they are mostly guys. Let's yes. face it. Think that they are doing God's work, and that's what's so interesting. They, they've had this holier than thou quality to all this disruption. You know, it's fine to move fast and break things. Disrupt everything. I mean, society, politics, it's all considered to be in the way, and yet they don't want to take responsibility for the bad stuff. But I think we're getting to a tipping point there. I mean, I think everything from the fact that you now have public massacres like what happened in New Z- Christchurch, New Zealand, being monetized on a platform like Facebook, that's something that gives people real pause, and it's bringing up something that they don't want us to talk about, which is the fact that this industry benefits from huge loopholes. So if you go back to the mid-1990s, they carved into the Communication Decency Act a loophole that means that they're not liable for anything that anybody does or says on their platforms. Think about that. I mean, this is Google and Facebook are giant media and advertising companies. That's where they get 90% of their income. And yet, unlike you or I, they are not liable. If one of their content creators does or says something not just untrue, but violent, that's not their problem. Well, I think it is going to... To be their problem. You're seeing again, both on the left and the right, not to mention overseas, people saying, you know what? Why should this industry get special exemptions um, now that it's, you know, the largest, most powerful companies in the world, not entrepreneurs in a garage? This is Jill on Money. Hey, gang,
0: it's me. Jill Schlesinger. you know that. You're listening to the Pod certified financial planner CBS News business analyst host of this here podcast Jill on money and I am here to tell you about our sponsor Marcus by Goldman Sachs they're helping people achieve financial well-being with simple and transparent banking products including clarity money that's a free personal finance management app that's part of the Marcus family Clarity Money is your AI-powered financial champion that shows you a simple view of your finances together in one place. They recently launched a weekly budgeting feature that you've just got to try. The app does the hard part for you and calculates your average weekly spend by category. You can take that information so you can set informed budget goals based on what matters most to you. You can also subscribe to Budget Alerts to help keep you on track. And start with a clean slate every week. Who doesn't want that? It's super easy to use and can make a task like budgeting kind of fun. So go check it out. Download Clarity Money through Google Play or iTunes, or visit Marcus.com forward slash Clarity. And now back to our interview with Financial Times columnist Rana Faruhar. You write The leadership at YouTube, Google, Facebook, and Twitter have known for years about the risks of platforms being misused by nefarious actors to send users down rabbit holes of propaganda. They just decided that fixing this problem wasn't worth the risks to their own business model. Has that changed?
1: I don't think it has changed profoundly. They they do a lot of tweaking every every few months. You see a you know some new blog post from one of the big platforms saying you know we've changed the algorithms. We're making them more user friendly. We're making them um, you know less uh, vulnerable to disinformation. I don't think it's profoundly changed. You know I had actually had an interesting conversation with a YouTube engineer as part of the reporting for the book, and he had tried to convince but he was he was worried as many engineers have been. About political manipulation online and he had tried to shift the business model so that when you are on YouTube for example as we all know if you click on cat videos you get more cat videos but if you click on right-wing hate you get more right-wing hate yeah you're like with the Nazis in five seconds exactly he wanted to offer people a broader range of content the argument being that this is not only good for society but maybe we'll actually get them to stay and figure out different ways to use the platform and that'll be good for us business-wise well it was profitable in in experiments that they ran, but not as profitable as just sending them down the rabbit hole. Mm. So he wasn't able to affect that change. And, of course, these are people who created
0: amazing innovations. Yeah. And if they had decided they wanted to solve this
1: problem, they would. That's what I can't get my brain around. I mean, come on. If you can create Google, you can help us fix this problem. exactly. And, and even
0: if you, if you were so
1: naive that you didn't see it, maybe they were. They are so opaque i mean nobody can see in it regulators don't know what the algorithms are doing there's no public transparency you know a google or an apple now almost underwrite new corporate bond offerings the way a goldman sachs does they have so much spare cash that they don't know what to do with they've been going in recent years and buying up a lot of the new bond offerings in the corporate world they're holding this record amount of corporate debt now i mean Who's debt is it? I don't know. You don't know. They don't have to record it.
0: The idea that so many of the newer firms or are, with, you know, the unicorns are not yet public is almost equally disturbing because then there's like even less disclosure.
1: I worked in a tech startup, actually a venture capital incubator uh, in London in the last dot com boom in 1999 and 2000. And it reminds me so much of this period right now. I mean, there is so much froth in the market. For starters, when I was offered that job, I was a mid-level editor at Newsweek. This VC firm came in, offered me this huge job. You know, I had no knowledge of technology, no knowledge of finance. I thought, my God, this is amazing. I'm going to get to go be a venture capitalist in London. Well, that was the sign of a market top. I mean, hello. But, you know, I recognize so many of the things in the market then and now. You've got a lot of big money, dumb money, frankly, chasing valuations that are already too high and you can see that starting to change. I mean, you look at Uber, very disappointing IPO, WeWork, which I think WeWork is going to be the Pets.com of this era. You know, I mean, this is a company that it was so lauded they had to pull their IPO eventually because people were like this is not going to fly. And now they're crashing and they're bringing down parts of New York and London property prices with them.
0: Let's go back to that time though in the the boom of the yeah. the tech boom of the late 90s early 2000s. I wonder if you can talk about the difference in these types of technology companies what they're doing their control
1: and what those companies which really were more direct to consumer right they were it was you know what we used to call B2C that um, wonky term I you know there were there was some value created back then it was more in the telecoms sector interesting There, there was a lot of fiber being laid that kind of in some ways literally laid the groundwork for the Amazons and the Googles now these firms today are much more powerful, not to say that they're not potentially overvalued. I mean, I think that there is this this business model of, which has kind of been the Amazon business model, certainly been the Uber business model of go in, grab a ton of market share as fast as you can, break as many regulations as you want, just you know move fast and break things because you've got to ring fence all the data and get the network so that nobody else can come in. But don't worry about profits. I think we're starting to see the end of that business model. I think profits are important now. That said, if you can get in and be the network as companies like Amazon or Google have shown, then you're there. But I will caveat this by saying that I think investors are downplaying the fact that even for the most rich and powerful firms, the value is still predicated on two things, loose regulation and the ability to cross borders very easily. And I think both of those things are changing. I mean, you know, we're in the midst of this U.S.-China ongoing trade war, which is really a tech war, which is a cold war for who's going to own the innovation ecosystem of the future. And China has its own big tech giants, right? And so they're ring fencing that, you know, Amazon can't even get into China. They've got Alibaba doing all their e-commerce. They've got Baidu, Tencent, all these giants. We've got our own giants. Europe may be going a separate direction. So we could see um, what I call a splinter net where you get different internets in different regions. Hmm. Um, That will be tricky for users, but it could really correct the valuations of some of these companies that are expecting to grow in all these markets are right, you write for the Financial Times you're not just covering technology these no. days
0: so although you have had a nice focus on that I've been I cutting know. out articles <laughs> Oh, I love
1: I okay. love that. I cut too. I and, know by the way it helps you um, if you hold things and touch them you remember them better finally I am not just <laughs> old-fashioned no
0: so you know here we are in the 11th year of the expansion so yeah. I was wondering if I could pick your brain sure. on a macro level 100% you know job market keeps growing here in the US how do you see the world economy progressing what do you think trips us up yeah what what,
1: what do you think so there's kind of two things in play in the global economy right now one is the US China relationship and I think that you are going to see what, what is called a decoupling of that relationship. And that's not just about Trump's trade war. That's about worries, again, both on the left and the right for different reasons, that U.S.-China relationship has really become kind of a dysfunctional marriage where it worked for a while. We sent them cheap capital. They built their manufacturing uh, industry. We got lower prices Now there's, oh, my God, China's innovating. China's leaping ahead of us. What happened to our industrial supply chains? What's happened in the Midwest? That's led to all kinds of political polarization. So I think that you're going to see a continued decoupling. Now, the markets don't like that because that's like, whoa, globalization was good for the markets for 40 years. Now, this whole decoupling thing, they don't know what to make of it. But there is a countering factor there, and that is the Fed. Don't fight the Fed, right? I mean, the Fed has dumped over $4 trillion of money into the U.S. markets in the last decade. I frankly thought it couldn't last this long, that the good times could not last this long. I thought we were going to see a correction you know, six months ago, I actually sold up a lot of my equities in August because I thought this can't last. We've had a record long cycle. We have prices that are as expensive by some measures as they have been in 150 years. Like what goes up must come down. But you still have the Fed pumping up the markets. I think though depending on what happens in the election that could be the year that you really start to see a correction and then how big will it be right I like a little barf out I like this is going on too long for me I don't feel comfortable when things are only going up well see that's what I mean you're a veteran I hear most of the veterans in the market I know have have really shifted their portfolios and there's a weird kind of dichotomy where some people I know are still in stocks. You know, I know people that say, hey, I believe this story that we're going to have a big correction, but the music's still playing. it got to be in stocks. But they're also in gold. So how weird is that? It's First like- of all,
0: that is like the dumb trade of the century. I always <laughs> hate that trade. I'm a, this is from a former gold trader. But there are oh, a, lot of other, a lot of other yeah. things that I would rather buy than gold yeah. and not Bitcoin. Ah. So <laughs> if you look at the, the landscape— we have this tremendous amount of change that's about to occur what does that do to economic growth it would seem to me that this puts downward pressure on growth does it doesn't necessarily mean we're in a recession but what does that mean for the average human being
1: Well, I think if you look at it at a kind of planetary level, yeah, we're not going to see the sort of golden period that we did between, you know, 2002 and 2007, where literally that was the fastest global growth in history. We were already sort of beginning to shift away from that, obviously, because of the great financial crisis. We're going to see a lot of fragmentation now, and it's going to be a tough environment for investors, I think, because we've had an environment for 40 years in which all boats have been rising. And so if you think about the investment advice that the average retail person was given, you know, that we were all given by our parents, you know, put your money in an index fund, forget about it. I'm not so sure that's the best advice anymore because I think that U.S. multinational stocks in particular, their growth is going to be constrained by these new boundaries that are being set up where you're going to see China having its own companies, its own economic ecosystem. China's kind of like the U.S. in the post-World War II period where mm-hmm. big single language market, plenty of room to run. They're going to grow their own economy. The U.S. is going to be at a real pivot point And I think it could go one of two ways. I think you could see a major correction a fall in the dollar and we could kind of become the new great britain where our glory days are past us you could also though see a more enlightened leader let's say come in and say all right maybe this decoupling thing isn't so bad maybe new technologies like 3d printing and you know all the digital services that make it theoretically easier to start your own business and work from home, maybe we can kind of create more local economies and make, make this new digital era a win-win era. But I'll tell you, it's a tricky game because you've got to uh, get the regulation right. You've got to shift education. You've got to you know retool people in terms of uh, skill sets. So it's, it's a big lift. In that environment, would you
0: see that interest rates remain low or do you see interest rates turning around and going
1: back up? Well, I tell you, I was really surprised by the most recent jobs report. I was I was pretty fascinated. And I, we have to say, I mean, we did see a lot more jobs created, but some of that was the GM workers right, going Right, but back.
0: 266, 41, are GM workers. So but yeah. let's put a
1: 220 print
0: up there. That would have surprised me right there anyway.
1: It's pretty amazing. I, again, I, I really did not think we were going to see that kind of quality going up in terms of jobs. If we see another two months of that, Yeah, then I'll start to worry about inflation. I always go, you know, I mean, you know, three months uh, cycles is is what you look at. But I think, frankly, if you see a big stock market correction and you see a fall in the dollar, then I think it would be hard to see more inflation. And then, yeah, do we get QE forever? I mean, do we get low? Are we Japan? We're Japan, except guess what? We don't own all our debt like Japan does. Okay, Rana, before you go
0: what was your worst financial or career decision you've ever made was it taking this job in the dot-com boom
1: you know I go back and forth about that it was a miserable job frankly because I had to get up every day and sell something I really didn't believe in and that's not a good feeling but I tell you what I learned a lot and I thought when I went into it I, I kind of looked at this operation I thought I think there's about a 60% chance this whole thing is gonna blow up but I'm still gonna know a lot more at the end which well, I did that's good yeah
0: you're listening to Jill on money welcome it's time for the Marcus Minute we are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs in the hot seat today author journalist Rana Faruhar. are you ready to play I am What's one word to describe your relationship with money? Fraught. What's always worth spending on? Myself. What's the dumbest thing you've spent money on? <laughs> oh
1: my God. My son's video games. How much do you spend on a haircut? Oh man, do I have to say You can
0: like two hundred bucks. She says sheepishly. <laughs> it's your last day on earth. You've got a hundred dollars in your pocket. What's your last meal?
1: Oh, steak au poivre, really good French fries, pecan pie with ice cream.
0: Rana Faruhar, the book is "Don't Be Evil." We will link to it. Thank, Thank, you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank today. you for
1: having me. Great interview.
0: Thanks so much to Rana Faruhar. Don't forget, we drop new episodes of this program every Tuesday and Thursday. We sometimes throw a bonus episode in as well. If you don't want to miss any of this fun just subscribe to us Jill on money you can get it on Apple stitcher radio.com Google Play anywhere else you find your favorite podcast and don't forget leave us a review and a rating mark says it works I'm not sure why our music is composed by Joel Goodman mark to is our executive producer we're distributed by cadence 13 and our show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs see you next week